Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast studios. When the throws a winner... And winter time is definitely something that you shouldn't be hating so much. You shouldn't be hating on it so much because it gives time to get together with family. And families always, it's going to be food. And food comes with great desserts. And I'm with one of Detroit's, I guess one I want to say, most beloved daughters when it comes to desserts. And you may know this lady from traveling down the avenue of fashions, but she's turning this block to now. A uh, spot for desserts. April, good cakes and bakes. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me here today. Definitely, definitely. This You are the proprietor of an establishment that I patronize, my dad patronizes, yes. my sisters patronize. We love good cakes and bakes like so many other Detroiters. So first, we just want to applaud that journey for that and we should be shaking you down now. It's like, where are some, where are some sweets? I know, and I thought about that. I was like, dang, I'm going over here on a day when we're not open. I should be taking dessert. We'll have no dessert up in here. I felt bad coming, let me tell you. I was no. like, dang, we'll have nothing today. We, we patronize. We love it. But I still like the bring because I love to see people's face when they're eating desserts. That's the whole reason why I got the bakery, to see the love people have when they eat sweets. Okay, that's all right. And, and we're going to get a whole lot of the story that I know some it, it, interconnects. This has been an interview we've been like plotting, planning for a while. Yes. I come in, she was like, April was like, when you going to have me on my show, on the show? I was like, you can come on anytime. You should have been on the show. <laughs> so then that's where I was like, I didn't know our platform was beloved on that. Yes. So I, seen, I was like, dang, he come to bakery all the time. Why he never asked me to do here? What's that about? <laughs> It is easy to get on Detroit is different. I know a lot of people just lost in translation. It takes time, but we can do it. And you've been on other shows here. You're connected to so many things and people in the community. Let's go to your Detroit story. Yes. What brought your family or you to the city of Detroit? So born and raised here, my grandmother and my great-grandfather is part of the Great Migration from mm. Missis, um, Grenada, Mississippi, here to Detroit. My grandmother moved here when she was nine years old, um, along with 14 brothers and sisters. They all moved here, and um, my mother, you know, born and raised here. I was born and raised here. Um, and you know how you born and raised here, and when you're growing up, you're like, God, I can't wait to get away from Detroit. So when I left to go away to school, I was like, I ain't never coming back to Detroit. <laughs> never come back. And of course, I came back. <laughs> Came back, did my master's here in Ann Arbor, and then I moved away to Arizona for five and a half years. And while I lived there, it's like when I realized that I, I, what I love so much about Detroit is the four seasons. Yeah. So you go to Arizona, it is 95 and 100 degrees, 365 days of the year. I know. It's like their winter. You don't like the uh, the 92-degree winter and the 110-degree no. summer? No. <laughs> So I'm not, I am a true, true, true winter baby. Love okay. snow, love cold. So to be there and not have any of those things was very depressing. So let's get into this. Okay, Grenada, Miss, I've never even heard of Grenada, Mississippi. So it, Whereabouts is it? So it is 10 miles. You ever heard of Winona, Mississippi? Mm -hmm. So it's 10 miles from Winona and 38 miles from Jackson, Mississippi, if you want to put that, if you want to. In the, in the map. Yeah, there so, you go. And with it, Mississippi's uh, one of those places is a lot of these stories start, like migration. A mm -hmm. lot of the families migrated from Mississippi just due to the railroad lines to Chicago yep. because it's a little further west. Mm -hmm. 
So when you find a Detroit person from Mississippi it, with those roots, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, what led to your family being here in Detroit, and do you have a lot of family over in Chicago? So I have um, quite just a little bit, but most of my family that's in Chicago came here and then mm. went to Chicago. So okay. my grandfather brothers came straight from Mississippi to Detroit okay. and came here to work in the foundries mm-hmm. in Michigan. And then my grandfather came here for the plants in Michigan, mm-hmm. um, here in Detroit. So it was a straight shot to Detroit, but then some of his brothers and sisters and my aunts and stuff moved, went to Chicago. I'm not sure why they decided to leave Detroit and go mm-hmm. there. And so I have a bunch of cousins who live there. And every so, so we have a family reunion here every, we have a family reunion every year. Mm-hmm. And it's either Mississippi, it's in Alabama, or sometimes it's here in Detroit. And recently we've been having them in um, Chicago, but mm-hmm. not in the Chicago land Proper. area, right? Yeah. It's always in Joliet, um, mm. Illinois. Um, okay. That's where all of our family who lives in Illinois, they all live in Joliet. Okay, so they see you and they see your nose and they like, you one of them, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you one of them people from Joliet, right? Yeah. They're like, yeah, that's where I want. Everybody's from I think Joliet, I'm your dad. yeah, everybody <laughs> from Joliet, yeah. So with uh, with with that. Now I definitely have a lot more questions. So they they came this way, then went that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mississippi, uh, was it agriculture, farming? What was the, uh, what was it? And then the family, you still have family down there, I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Yep, still have family down there. So it's so interesting that all of my grandmother's brothers moved here, mm-hmm. but to begin with, a couple of her sisters stayed there because they. Mm-hmm. By the time my grandmother was. By the time they moved here, some of her sisters was already grown, and they mm-hmm. decided to stay. So I have cousins who there, who's like my mother's age because mm-hmm. um, they, you know, they're my grandmother's sister's kids, and so my mother's mm-hmm. like first cousin area. But they still there, and then they have kids. So we have a, quite a bit of family that still live there. Older family that lives there. Um, but my grandfather was a sharecropper, mm-hmm. um, so you know he had land there, um, and literally we, they, my um, grandmother. So she has two sisters still alive. None of her brother, all of her brothers are deceased. And so they sold the they sold the land just in 2017. The mm. land they still they still own the land there all this time, um, and they just sold it in 2017. And, and that's a deep story. Uh, reference to Roderick Miller episode of Detroit is Different where he talks about sharecropping, uh, what that business was, and more so the impact because that's another one of those kids from the good old South <laughs> and uh, and having family there. So those small towns, and that's what we kind of talked about. Like, it's a, it's an ecosystem. It's a flow. Um, and sharecropping, you can reference that. It, it, it's a... It, it definitely was not... Um, the way it was executed, it was it was weird. So for a lot of people that didn't know, me and Roderick didn't say, it would kind of be like a Uber-ish form of business. Right. Meaning like you have land in exchange for your in exchange for we're 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 sharing the crop of this. So you're kind of know you're getting pennies on a dollar. Meaning right. It ain't, it ain't your... really a share. It is. It's, it's just it was just modern mm. modern day slavery, basically. Yes. Right. Because you never could get out of debt. Yes. They made they made sure that you always they always had some ownership in you and your land. Right. Because either you didn't your crop didn't you didn't your crop didn't produce produce enough Yield for you. To, to give them their share because, of course, they gave, they fronted you the seeds to 
and maybe allowed you to use some of their equipment to to um, harvest your land. Mm-hmm. And so, by if you're if you had a bad crop, then you were messed up. Sometimes my grandfather talked about sometimes he would do a whole harvest and wouldn't get nothing from it. Yeah, he would he would still owe them money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when he goes to when he goes to do his next crop. He's in. He's like double in debt. So it's like he was like he could never get out. That was one of the main reasons why he wanted to leave. Was he felt like that he he was never going to get out of debt if he had to stay there and take care of his kids. But but they still own the land. And but the difference was is that when he came here and he was able to start working, and then his sons was my uncles was working too. They were able to pay off their debt down there, and that's the reason why a lot of people who who were in sharecropping didn't still own a land because they were so indebted that but my grandfather sent money down there to cover his cost of the land because again I had aunties who still stayed and that's the only reason why they were able to still own a land after over a hundred years was because his purpose was to get out of debt. It's why he moved here. He no longer wanted to be in debt to a white man. He felt and this is, so this the story I'm saying is exactly how he told it to us growing up was like I was tired of working for the white man. I, I felt like we were still in slavery. So mm-hmm. I came here with the with the intent to form some type of generational leg um a legacy here of making sure that my family had the house that I worked and slaved and got beat to have. Mm, that's deep. Yeah. And that's that's powerful that that's the that that's like a a, a pivotal elder in your life story to hear his perspective of that. Yeah. Um, so, so with that, what, what, um, and being that he kept that in his heart, uh, how, uh, and I'm jumping so many other stories, <laughs> but how knowing that, how did your family come to like a consensus on even agreeing on, on selling any of the land? Like what was the, what was the talk? Because I'm pretty sure that that was a looming it was presence. A, it was a year. Every step of years. the year, every, every time it was even brought up, it was like, now y'all know, y'all know how we in this situation. Yep. It was, it was, it took years. I think my uncle started talking about it maybe in like 2008 I want to I think about when I first came back Mm -hmm. to Michigan so around 2008 is when they first started talking about it and it was more so because the the kids didn't want it they didn't want the responsibility of it but the um adults and you know my grandmother's brothers and sisters were all too old getting too old to try and handle it and so they wanted to sell it because they wanted to they didn't want the, they didn't want it to go to waste, and so they wanted to sell it. And it took years. And like my grandfather has a bunch of property here, off of um, McGraw and Ferry Park, and they still own that land over there. But we have some of my cousins live over there. But that was another thing they was they wanted to sell that. And they were like, no, we'll never sell that land over there. But mm. they was like, no one, you know, all the kids in Mississippi don't want it. All of my aunts and stuff who were there are all deceased, and they didn't want the land just to go. So just to sit there right away. And, and I like this because it, it, exploring this, just it, even in our family, it's all types of family business. And it was funny. I was having a talk with my dad. I'm like, you know, with the passing of certain figures in our family, we've assumed new, I guess, traditions of how leadership happens, how family decisions are made. Mm-hmm. And this to me, it, you know, it's not like a, a you know, it's not a, making tough family decisions in a black family for dummies. It's not a book you can read. It, right. it, it needs to be a lot of consensus. Mm-hmm. And it brings people together. And, and sometimes when you bring people together, you know, everybody won't agree. It exactly. can get heated. Sure. No, right. It can get real heated, yeah. the beauty of it is, is this, it, it's, 
it's a process to me of us learning to connect yeah. at, at, on the ground. So hearing a story like that, when you do have people of different backgrounds, you, you know, you, you're going to have some people in Chicago, some people in Mississippi, lineage, you know, and that's where, yeah. like, all crazy stuff, you know, your mama don't like me because, uh -huh, yeah. you know, back in 71, you know, I, I took her boyfriend. <laughs> so like, like, like that, that right. doesn't yeah. have anything to do with anything. <laughs> but you still have to entertain yeah. it. Like, it's a, it's, it's a flow, and then you're still all, and everyone it does have on them the onus of your grandfather letting them know that, like, look, for real, these th this was something that I felt that I was in the worst conditions dealing with this, uh, feeling enslaved, and I'm I'll be damned if that if the if the trick game that they got me into this situation with it'll be the same trick game that they take it from. Exactly. So I'll be working up here and sending money back down and making sure that it, it's uh, I'm getting my receipts in full and everything and taking, taking care, care of it yeah. because. I'm not about to let them slick me out of that. Whereas now you, you know, you move, I don't know, I mean, at that point, six, you know, 60, 70, 80 years later, and now you have descendants that have an asset yeah. that are young uh, and, and new financial systems that, in, in a lot of my way, in Kari Frazier opinion, not necessarily <laughs> different, a lot of these systems exploit black people. Yeah. So, like, the onus, especially, like, nowadays with, like, um, you know, green energy standards, uh, your agricultural standards and, and different things like that. You know, that lawnmower, the the lawn, the riding mower you bought seven years ago. Now they're saying is like, look, you that if you even think about taking that out, we're going to take some pictures of it and you're going to get fined $40,000 a day. And it's yeah. like, why? Yeah. And it's like, because it's killing the environment. And it's mm -hmm. like, OK, is this and I'm not saying, look. I'm all for a lot of the green energy, but a lot of some of these initiatives are being used to exploit and shut down businesses like a lot of the black black far, black farmers exactly. and, and, um, and agriculture. Yep. Like so. So there are it's families. Their, yeah, it's their, it's their way of taking being able to take the land because, you mm -hmm. know, you can't afford you don't have a you don't have the big farm and big dollars behind you mm -hmm. to, to upgrade your equipment every five or six years. So every initiative to come out, um, you got someone who, who fronting you the money to mm -hmm. to buy the new equipment, right? So what does that do? It shuts down your farm that you can, you, now you cannot even harvest your land because you don't have the equipment to do it. So what, what are you going to do when they put you in that little small, little small container, what you can do? You can't even, you can't yeah. even keep the up the upkeep of that land. So what do you end up doing? Selling it. So it's like they put all these constraints around you to limit your growth and limit what you can do so they can come in there and give you pennies on the dollar for the land. Yeah. And and, and that's the flips. And, and, you know, and it's almost, it's the same. It's, it's unique because the, probably a descendant that he doesn't, he's never met in his life, you know, that young, you know, you 20-something. You, you love the idea. You see, like, some of your counterparts, some of the white folks down there in Mississippi saying, like, oh, we, you know, we see that marijuana about to get open. You know, we yep. can grow some hemp here and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. But they're getting access to opportunities that we won't get access to. Exactly. So you're, 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 you're judging this situation and feeling, like you say, confined, and you got to make a decision. And you're honoring, and it's still from the same lens. So now you have to have a real collective family discussion with some elders in your family saying, like, look, I think it's a way that we can do this, and it will not, it will honor, I guess, and that's where it really becomes tough. You're honoring the legacy of your grandfather <laughs> while still putting yourself in, in a situation where you're protected and, and have an advantage, too. And yeah. these are... 
you know, like I say, I'm, I'm getting more into like making those family decisions. It's 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 beautiful. It's tough, but it's really how we move collectively. Yeah, and it's I think it's a lot better now than it was before mm-hmm. because before now you can have Zoom calls, you can have phone calls, yeah. and do it. Where before it was only the people and like people in Detroit was making the decisions about Detroit. People in Mississippi was making the decisions about the land in Mississippi. Now it is like, nope, you're not making the decision. We all can get on a call, mm-hmm. and that's the one thing that I feel that has helped us a lot to stay connected with both with Detroit and Mississippi is that we, our family is like, no, we're going to all get on a call. So you might have 70 people on one Zoom call. And this wow. was before the pandemic, before people, my my aunts, my grandmother had to know how to use Zoom, even though they'd be on there like, can you hear me, baby? Yeah, Granny, get your head out the screen, please. <laughs> but they, we would get on those Zoom calls to talk about stuff. I like it. And, you know, we, would, we might be on there for hours because – my grandmother asking a question, and now we got to explain it to her, like, how is this beneficial, why we shouldn't do this? And all they're thinking about is we don't have time. We're we getting older. We don't have time for this. So who's going to take care of it yeah. and make try to want to make sure that it's not going to go to waste? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so now let's just move to, into this Detroit story. Your your parents and everything. Mm-hmm. What, what side of town? Where, where do you... Uh, when you think of Detroit and growing up, what neighborhood do you say this was us? Um, Warren and Livernoy, West Warren. Ah. West Warren is where I grew up at. Um, my parents now stay in the Russell um, Woods area, but okay. growing up, we stayed off of Warren and Livernoy. Well, now that's considered Southwest Detroit, where before it was mm-hmm. just the west side of Detroit, but now it's considered Southwest Detroit. As a Northwestern, I consider that as a location of street races. But. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I used to sit on the roof because my bedroom was a window to the porch, and I, we had like, you know how you had a double roof? Yes. And we used to climb out the window and sit there and watch because we was three houses off the corner. We would just sit on the roof until 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning watching the races go down the street right there. Yes, I was two blocks from White Castles, and we used to sit on the roof yes. and watch the, watch the so, races. Yes. So, so for people that don't know, like, <laughs> It's definitely not Fast and the Furious or anything, but, like, it it would almost be, like, Belle Isle or something. Like, it was a couple different strips where you had street races where people would just race cars. Like, usually, like, it's, like, I don't even know. Like, I'm... very informal and everything. Like, I guess you'd have to stay up till, like, maybe, like, one thirty in the morning. Enough people would gather. Then cars would race. So and it West was, Warren was one of the most, as far as, like, of West Side locations where West Siders would go and race cars. Yeah. And kind of like the Bell Out, yeah, um, it was, old Bell Out. Yeah, it was like, like the old, the strip, the Bell mm-hmm. Out. Exactly. And the interesting thing about it was there was, like, no social media, nowhere. People yeah, know, but right people here. just knew to do it. And it was there the yeah. whole time we grew up. I lived, on, I lived over there from the time I was... Four months until I graduated mm. high school and went away to college, and mm. every weekend it was never a weekend where it didn't happen. And it was, <laughs> and it wasn't until I'm, honestly, it was like it was like every every weekend you knew it was happening. It was like it was posted. You just knew that yes. at two o'clock in the morning, get outside and you can see races yes. going on. And it wasn't no fight, and it wasn't nothing. Mm. It was it was like it started, it went on, and then it ended when the police mm. came at like five o'clock. They get tired yes. of it, they come shut it down. There mm. was not anything going on. It was nothing. It was never nothing. It, it all going on. It was like no, like none of nothing. It was like people just came together and had a good time. And that's what, yeah. And I definitely think you know it's a way to organize that culture. I know the police were have been in talks. Uh, the, the young dude, uh, Tay Crispy, the, the oh. guy from the streets. So he would talk about because Vice ran a story, and sometimes Vice, I feel like like a lot of other media, kind of paints a narrative that can be um, where they just don't 
frame it in like how you framed it. They yeah, they paint it like it's just not. like you know, just extreme and extremely outrageous. Like the I'm on the lodge with it kind of had a lot right, to do right, with the, the. It's like okay, nobody's doing donuts. And, it wasn't, on but it, the was, freeway, it wasn't like that. You know? It wasn't no, like that. It was it was like, and it was respectful. Honestly, mm. it was respectful. It was no like nobody, no cars. You know, like shut. Well, even though they really did shut down the street, but I think people knew like this that was going late, on. Yeah, it's, the, it's this time of night. night. This is yeah. going on. People mm. wouldn't come. You know, they would go a different way if they had to go down that way. Mm. And it was like it wasn't holding up traffic. People sitting in the middle of the street waiting to get by. It was just everybody knew at this time mm-hmm. this was going to happen. And it was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go down to Wyoming and come back around. Yeah, that's, what, yeah, yeah. that's what you would have to. Yeah, exactly. If you lived in that neighborhood. Air, yeah, go down, like down to Wyoming. No social media, but many would gather and be there. If <laughs> yes. you, you just in the know, you know. Yes, so other things about that community, because it is kind of on the cusp of that's uh that neighborhood is kind of like the the East State Fair neighborhood in the sense of like it's inside Detroit and this is such a chocolate city, but because Dearborn's not that far away, mm-hmm. Southwest Detroit is, is is there. Like it's a it's a lot more diverse. Oh, it was than like a my lot high of school, other communities. I went to Chassis High. My mm-hmm. mother went to Chassis High. My uncles, my cousin, all of us all went to Chassis High, and it was very diverse. We had Hispanics. We had I, I was in a class with like twenty Romanian girls in my class, and that was from mm-hmm. junior high all the way to high school. It was, it was mm-hmm. definitely it was definitely a diverse, diverse. Even though it was you know again my whole block, my whole little area where I lived was black, but we went when we crossed over McGraw to get to school, it was total difference. Did you did you notice that as a child that like okay. This diverse experience may not be the experience of like my cousins on the east side. Oh yeah, my, oh yeah, you, I did because I had I had cousins who lived. My, so my grandparents were divorced. So my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived on the street from us. And that's another thing. A lot of my aunts all lived like in three blocks. Mm. One of my aunts stayed around the corner. That's where my cousin stayed. My grandmother stayed on the same street of us at the at the corner of like maybe 10 houses down from us. My other cousin stayed two doors down from my grandmother. Um, one of my cousins stayed next door to my grandma. So it was like our whole family stayed in that area right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had my grandfather who lived over right and right on college, right right across from the, the, the um, Detroit airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that side of town was different. And we only went over there and we was going to my grandfather's house. But my cousins over there, they went to school with all black kids. Mm-hmm. They might have had one one white kid in their class. And they yeah. thought that was anonymy to have that one white kid there. Yep. Where me, I go to school, they like, I half my class is white. I'm, I might I might have been the only black kid in one of my so classes. They, they show up to your graduation, they'd be like, dang. Who is all these kids? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. What, what the heck? Is yes. she going to school with in the police? Right, exactly. She going to school in she Detroit. She to school with the police. Yes. <laughs> so, it's totally different, yes. And so, as people watch outside of it, that's what makes a lot of the culture in Detroit so different because of so many black folks. Yep. Because, yeah, it, you can be here and the whole world surrounds you is that so Chatsy is definitely that that community is is unique yeah. with that and I that's another that was a tough one like when you think about closing schools yeah you know that was a tougher one because that school meant so much to even more than just yeah it was definitely um when they closed Chatsy it was like it was almost like a shocker because I was like Chatsy of all schools because it started off with they closing Southwest Southwest closed first right mm-hmm. so those kids either came to Chatsy or then they went over to um to uh, Western, mm-hmm. so it was the two schools, and then then after that it was, they people had to go to McKenzie, 
Yeah. Um, it was it was so interesting when they started closing schools to because I know it was like a culture shock for some people to leave one school that is so diverse and have to either go to Western, which was a, a lot more Hispanic, um, yeah. Hispanic and black, but still people of color. Or to go to McKenzie, which was which, like, oh, oh, black, McKenzie right? Is, yeah, shout out my stagnation. <laughs> yeah, because McKenzie is like, you jumping in the, you jumping in it. Like, it was like a big, <laughs> big difference, yes. Yeah, if you were a Romanian kid walking in McKenzie, you better keep it your was, head on the swivel. Yeah, you was not, it was not comfortable. Yes, yeah, so you, you better get good at, at as, as the old folks say, the dozens. <laughs> <laughs> get good at, get good at, you know, like a, a so. You need to embrace and ingratiate yourself in black culture to there be you go, at to a school like over kids, there, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and you at this, uh, what what did your what are your parents doing? What's their what's their career path? So my mother most of the time was a like stay at home mom. My mm-hmm. father worked for Chrysler, worked in the big three. Mm-hmm. So you know that was honestly growing up. That's all my parents. It was either you're going to get married. Or you're going to work for one of the three things. You live in Detroit, you either work for the big three, for the city, or for the state, right? Mm-hmm. You want a job, it's going to give you some pension. It's going to give you benefits. And so when I was going to school, that was my father. I was like, well, when you go to school, come back home and get a job here. Yeah, I don't want to come back here and get a job mm-hmm. here. But, yeah, it was that was it. So went to college, came home, worked, worked at Chrysler. Um, worked in the plant first and then moved over to the finance side of Chrysler, worked there. And then when I decided I was going to, then there was like, there's an episode, you know, time in my my life where things was crazy. Then I came home and worked in, um, worked in human services before Hmm. I decided I was going to um, open up a bakery. And my father just didn't understand that to save his life. Like, you Mm -hmm. got a job. And, and and so much of that is the culture. That that's another thing that's unique about. And this isn't just Black Detroit culture, just the Metro Detroit, really Michigan culture, because of that reliance on the big three. But also with that came a, a understanding from unions yep. and, and, and the role that unions heighten quality of life for all people. Yeah. Now, I'll be the first one to say unions were started because they didn't want to work al- alongside black people. But eventually it was obvious that, okay, black people need to join for to, to move forward with our, with, with, with what we would want anyway, you know, and really the, the culprit in this is the corporation, but it heightened the quality of life, especially when we think about, you know, the 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 60s 70s 80s part of the 90s you know that you know just certain standards of vacation pay uh being sick leave um you know eap so i know for a fact that like my uncles and aunts a lot of my uncles and aunts were on drugs but they still worked in the plant and you can you can get in trouble for literally stealing stuff like I, I i worked in a plant at jefferson north is where i worked there when i worked inside the plant and there were several times where every night several times every day two guys would walk past i worked on an engine line so i did the um put the filter on the oil filter and and a, the, i also worked right next to where they did the um starter and every day these two guys at lunch would come past and take two starters out of the cart and walk out Mm-hmm. Every day, did that every day. They was on drugs, and they would constantly get their job back. Yeah, I mean, it would, they would get, they would get, they would, they would have to go to thirty days of treatment and get their jobs back. So that was one of the, that was one of the things that being in the union doing when drug, when the height of drugs was real bad for people is that you knew you wasn't gonna lose your job. I, I think, it, it, and it's it's a it's a like most things in life, like it's tough to make like blanketed decisions of 
this is good, this is bad. Yeah. And on the other side of it, also when it comes to corporations like, you know, the big three that get billed out from our government, it's like, well, it's not like y'all not taking money from people either. You know what I'm saying? But it's it's a tough, it's a tough, tough because some some people with those struggles with addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and interconnecting uh, how things happen, like that that season one of uh, Black Mafia Family, where it's like, oh, we just gonna set up a food truck, right, and then that's exactly, gonna be a yeah, spot mm-hmm. across from like that's from the plants, yeah. even though that's television. Like, I mean, but I, I would go a step further and say I know a lot of people that had a job at the plant, but their job at the plant was for. Uh, other goods to be sold. Exactly. Oh, and, yeah. and some it of those like people was, were people that were like it, like a marketplace. Some yeah, it was, people, a, you know, it was a world of its own. It was a, yeah. wor- a world yes. of its own. Yes. Yeah. Anything you wanted, you can get inside the plan. It mm-hmm. was its own world. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, and in that culture um, comes other things too, like in entrepreneurship. That's yeah, really sure. where a lot of Detroit businesses will start. Yep. Like, you know, especially like people that cook mm-hmm. and bake and things yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right, I'm going to come, you know, Friday. I'm doing my. Uh, I'm, I'm doing my lasagna. Exactly. You some, I'm passing. You gonna see? It's gonna. Yeah, you go in the bathroom on Tuesday, and there'll be a little sticker on the thing to say, <laughs> "Hey, I'm selling dinners Friday. Come over to, um, come over to the body shop and give give me your order. <laughs> Call over there. You know, they, it'd be signs to tell you like, oh, such and such selling. And then mm-hmm. people who sold like desserts and dinners, they would come into the parking lot, so you would know Friday mm-hmm. at lunchtime you go outside and people would be selling dinners and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and dinners, even clo- you know, my, whatever. My girlfriend do these crochet hats you probably want one da, 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 da. like it's mm-hmm. a, it was definitely yes because that many people creates community yep exactly you know when you bring a lot of people together a community will be created definitely and, and how the functionality of it hierarchy a lot of this and in school let, let's kind of in, in your story you say after school and then back to the plant what school did you go to for college? Yep, I went to Spelman in Atlanta, for, did oh. my undergrad there, four okay. years there. Then okay. I came back here and I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor for my master's. I did my MBA at, at, um, in Ann Arbor. So yep. you went to another black city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, to- it, w- it was a difference, though. It was yeah, totally different. It was, yes. to- it, was, it was a definite culture shock, and it mm-hmm. also was wonderful. Because living here in Detroit, it was for me. I'm only I can only talk about my experiences. Yeah. Um, growing up in a house with um, brothers and sisters who were lighter than me, mm. there was always a difference. I can feel the difference in how I was treated compared to how they was treated. Even at school, I felt the same way. It was like I hated being dark skinned. I mm. hated going outside in the summertime because I would get real dark. So I would, mm. I, I literally would not go outside. I would stay in the house all day, and in the evening I would mm. go outside. And it was because of that. And so going down to Atlanta. It was a total opposite. It was like, what? You don't yeah, like you your getting, you don't like your blackness? What? Yeah, you you getting hit all left and right. right. It was like, like it was total difference. It was like, oh my God, yeah. your skin is so beautiful. What are you talking about? You don't like it. So it was like it was definitely a culture shock, but it was it was also me becoming myself, me mm-hmm. learning to like and love myself differently when I got there. Even though and people people don't understand that when I try and explain it because it's like you come from, it's not it's not like you lived in a city where it was all white people. You lived in a city all black people. Yeah, and black people can be mean sometimes. I don't care. Very I don't care. They can, so. Yeah, you know, you have that Television here, so. you know that, and, and then growing up in a house where it's different now. But growing up, I can say I never heard my mother say, "Oh, April, you look so cute." Mm-hmm. I, can, I would hear her say to t- my sister, "Like, oh my God, you look so pretty today, Tamika." Mm-hmm. But me, she wouldn't. I never heard that. I only heard praises about my grades being smart. Mm-hmm. It was always, "April, you so smart." I never heard that. So growing up in your house, if you if you don't get that, you and then you go outside the house and you don't get that. Where do you where do you get that love from? And that's that brings a couple different points to explore. Like first, 
colorism is real in, in our community, but it also goes along the lines of like when I said like the the Romanian kid, like be ready for the dozens yeah. and, and the culture. Like part of it, it's it's tough because like, and I love comedy, but I also understand that some people, it, you know, it's just tough for them to even experience and listen to like if you know if you have struggled with addiction or have family members that have struggled with addiction and then you listen to a richard Pryor set that could possibly raise like a physical emotion for you yeah. whereas you know i definitely yeah. have had family with addiction where i look at it and you know even with the family members that have struggled and recover we'll laugh together but that's our culture and it's hard to even look at what you know, how different people may respond to something. Mm -hmm. um, and those things that happen as a child really stick with you so much more in that awareness and that colorism was very... And, and today, it's acknowledged a lot more, but I oh, yeah. still am very aware of, like, I know when I turn my television on, chances are if it's a newscast woman or or the Hollywood leading lady, I mean, you know, Lapita, Viola Davis, I, I don't see them in the pantheon probably of that same arc of success if this were the 80s or the 90s. Oh, definitely. You know, um, because it's just even the, the, the framework of how people engage and, and, and what people see. So I could easily see that existing there where then you go down south, you get to, you know, you, know, you get to a chocolate city that's in the south, uh, a, a diff different types of people because, you know, Atlanta is not, like, as propped up by as one industry and, like, so it's not, like, the same systems exactly, thinking. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. all types of people in Atlanta. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely different. It was definitely different. It was, it was a, mm -hmm. and it's so weird to hear but to say, but it was definitely a culture shock. It was mm -hmm. definitely different the way people, black love, black expression was there mm -hmm. that you didn't have here. Yes. Um, and so it was like, it really, that was a time for me to really learn myself. And it's so sad to say, but before I moved to Atlanta, I had never, I had never done anything to my hair. I always kept my hair permed. Always, I never let my hair get new growth. I was like, no, I don't no nappiness, no nappiness. Mm. But then to get there and all I see is a whole bunch of girls walking around with natural hair. Mm. I'm like, what's wrong with them? Mm -hmm. Why you, why you, why you, why your hair ain't permed? Yeah. And it was there that I was like, you know what? I'm stopped perming my hair. And it was when I came back here to Michigan and, and then I was told my mother, I said, like, oh, I'm going to lock my hair. And she's like, why you want your hair to be dirty? Mm -hmm. And it's because, again... It's back to the understanding of how she grew up. And, yeah, exactly. And like, what she, no what she, one ever really presented. And then also in some of the... Because I have these debates where I'm usually the person people are like, you always defending them old people. It's like, <laughs> not necessarily, but some of the things that we say were harmful were defense mechanisms to stay alive for, yeah, people. for them. So yeah. like, mm -hmm. so, you know, that was taught to, you know what I'm saying? Cause it's like, that was taught from a past generation to a certain way. Like right. the, here's the classic one, you know, children's have their place and children shouldn't say nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. That, and, and it's, it's breaking in many families, but that was a classic yeah. known mm -hmm. reality in many black For families. Sure. But it was a, you can stay alive. Because exactly. the kid, like as you said, in that sharecropping situation, it's like, nah, we got double that, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, man, now nah, I'm going to get lynched. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he, he ain't here no more. And you're right. It's, you know? like, it's like that, that attitude of um, you need to make yourself 
fit in as much as possible and not yes. be a threat to anybody, right? Yes. Non-threatening it's, Negro. There you go, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you want to you want to make yourself as neat and as clean as possible. So you work in corporate America, April. You about to lock your hair? Do you understand that that, that that's not acceptable? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm doing it. And so once I did it, it was, and it, also it had to do with the fact that. No one in my family had locked hair at that time. Mm. So you can only go by the stereotype of what you see. You might see like some Rastas who do the free forming and you think that's how everybody's I was like, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be a manicure a lot. So it wasn't until I got them then, you know, getting them done and styled and stuff. Then she's like, Oh, I like that. And so then when I cut my locks off and then I still she thought I was gonna perm I said, I'm still not perming my hair. Mm. I just just starting all over. Um, and then it was like two years ago. She was like, I think I want to lock my hair. And I was like, oh, you? That's deep. Right. You want to lock your hair? And, and that's all I want to say, too, because sometimes that elder, you know, they're definitely going to push back. But over time, they, they it, the art can change. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then it's it's tough to have this conversation, but I definitely know from our most listened to podcast on our network is My Natural Hair, which still gets, mm-hmm. they haven't, we haven't even posted an episode in about, in a long time. And it still gets so many listens across. Yeah. The globe, but the it, it's an episode where um, Ladonna Sims is, is talking like, yeah, when I first wanted to get locks, like in the '90s, it was tough because I couldn't even really know, you know, where and how. It, it wasn't as prevalent as now. Mm-hmm. She was like, all I had was was Maxine from Living Single, the first season, as a frame of reference yeah. for it. So I had to look in. She was like, I studied Francine, I, I mean Maxine for. A long time. She was like, I studied her and re- read these articles and what salon she went to and everything. And then I had to find her loctician and where things were. The products weren't as prevalent. So you, she was making products. Hence why my natural hair is worth listening to. Donna Sims, check that yeah. out. But, you know, it, it, it was a journey. And that's where, like, I think, thing, you know, culture changes and, and better understandings can be given, you know, through people taking that lead. Because yeah. I'm sure with you starting your lock journey, let all the other, definitely the other women in your family now, especially the younger ones, say, hmm, yeah. I have an option. This is a variation. This mm-hmm. is different. It's, and that's so true. It's yep. open. I'm, I'm now open because, you know. I've uh, seen it. Because my big cousin April did it. Mm-hmm. And and it's just as successful. Not, you know what I'm saying, that life didn't crash right, down. Exactly right. Didn't come, you know? come <laughs> down. The world didn't, you know didn't, didn't end. Exactly. It's so true. And that's so true because... Now, I don't think none of my sisters or none of their daughters have permed hair. Hmm. And I think it is because, and I know for sure that it has to do with me, you know, always taking my nieces to, like, we used to go to Atlanta to the um, to the hair show, the natural hair show down there, because mm-hmm. I wanted her to see, as she was getting older, she's like, oh, I want my hair permed. No, you don't. Let me show you that you can have cute hair, and you don't have to have it permed. So taking them there to see that... You don't have to have straight hair. You can you can do stuff to your natural hair, and you can embrace your. It don't have to be straight. And going to taking them to stuff like that definitely, I know, help them to embrace their natural texture of their hair and not feel like it needs to be pressed or straightened out. It can be curly and just natural. It, and, and that's that's powerful. And you're at Spelman too. So Spelman comes with a whole nother. Uh, enclave of culture tradition and the number one thing like when i talk to a lot of my friends that go that have gone to spellman howard and morehouse i'm always in, in all the hbcus too but especially those three uh in hampton as well because of the legacy of yeah. Hampton. like mm-hmm. when i think of those schools you're in school with some descendants of some heavyweight movers and shakers yeah. yep 
and you're seeing so many different variations of the black experience. Like move-in day, I remember we were helping Suzanne's daughter move in one day. So it, it was so unique on Howard's campus. So you're seeing like you're seeing trail cases of like Louis Vuitton bags and everything like that. And then you're seeing a person like almost with like uh, you know, as I call it, hobo luck, like <laughs> hobo luck <laughs> with like trash bags <laughs> and stuff. And it's like, but all in this same mix, all black folk. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, sometimes they admit it, you know, depending upon the administrator, some sometimes it's tighter, sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. You you kind of see the the way that our culture comes to life, I think, on an HBCU campus, which is so unique about this Deion Sanders story now, because you'll see where, okay, obviously more attention is spent at this school and yeah, under sure. this like, I guess, program. And then this one, not as much attention. Oh, yeah, definitely yeah. had a bunch of those. Yeah, right. And so for me, it was like what what going on to the Spelman campus showed me was like, because here it's like mostly every black person I know was blue collar. Yes, blue collar worker. Blue collar. So to go there and see so many people that were not blue collar, were mm-hmm. white collar, doctors, I have so many people on my, on my dorm floor whose parents was a cardiologist. What? Doctors, anesthesia, you know, to just the just the broad difference of blackness, and it wasn't just just the Cosby Show. It wasn't it wasn't like the Cosby Show to have a doctor and a lawyer in the house was was something abnormal and special. It, mm-hmm. In some places, so so to be on there to be on the campus there was like you definitely learned that everybody is not the same. Detroit yes. is definitely is not the normal, and, and it's and then even with those campuses. The Detroiters you meet down there mm-hmm. aren't the monolith. Oh yeah. So like it, it just expands the, the view, the whole view of, of everything. It. Especially yes. like a school, like the brothers I know that went to Morehouse because there's so many preachers that go to Morehouse. Yeah. <laughs> you start getting a different view of preachers. Yep. You know, not saying like you know everybody. You know, it's it's definitely a large enclave of people like <laughs> preachers. Like not that, but just more so like you would think. That like you know what I'm saying to meet a pastor and it's like oh this pastor is like a real visual artist oh, like right, a real you know person it's not this you, you know because here growing up you put your pastor on a pedestal yes, that yes. you know he could do no wrong he don't laugh mm-hmm. he not a poop he not a normal person you know you got to be so so serious when you're around him then to get there and you're like he dressing just like me laughing yeah. just like me. Like what? It's, yeah, it's, he, yeah, we at the club together. Right. It's just you know like totally saying? you realize yes. you realize that it's just a person. Yes. He's just a person. Mm-hmm. So take them off of that pedestal that you put them on. Of course you respect, but it's just a person, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until you get other places where the the pastor isn't trying to be where I'm better than. Mm-hmm. I don't sin. I don't do anything. I'm perfect. Nobody's perfect. But you get to see this, you get to see this all around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, because I know that just, yeah, by going to Spelman, you obviously, like, some of your class, you know, some of the classmates, maybe even people, like, the dorm across where you were, like, uh, daughters of, like, you know, senators and, you know what I'm saying, you definitely, We definitely had some dignitary, like yeah, definitely. You know? And we had a lot of immigrants. And that's the other I was, thing, Yeah, you had so. a lot of immigrants, a lot of people from the islands, yeah. a um, couple people from Jamaica, um, from Barbados, definitely was. And it was it was so interesting because they were coming here to get a better better life. But it was like, you what, what they think was a better life. But you talked to them like, oh, my father is the prime minister of Barbados. What? So when you come yeah. into Michigan, to me, to the state to get a better life, don't you got the better life? No. It's like Spelman was like the epitome of 
greatness for yes. them to they you know that was they were excelling to come here to go to Spelman to go to Morehouse to go over, even at the time it was Morris Brown and Clark Atlanta mm-hmm. you know we had that whole little big board right right the there a- and it was, was just like ACU, a- okay. it was the um CAU yeah CAU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was like definitely different um environment which I loved and I wanted to stay in Georgia but um, we we my my class was considered the Olympic class, so we graduated '96, and that's the year that the Olympics was in Atlanta, right? So you had everybody came to Atlanta, but nobody wanted to leave Atlanta, so mm. it got super overcrowded. From yeah. wow, so you were there during that, which yeah. that's a unique time, and and I don't know, I mean, you're, I you know, I love black, I love Detroit's black history, but I just like black history period. period. Yeah. So because of because of Detroit's black history tying into the story of Coleman Young so much. I obviously study the hell out of Maynard Jackson, Willie Brown, um, you know, even to, um, you know, Harold Washington. Uh, like some of these, as they say, like first black mayors are some, they have some interesting stories. And it's less the story of the individual and more the 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 the, the collective of people surrounding them. And then also the way the story is told yeah. And that iteration of Maynard Jackson in the hearts and minds of a lot of those, especially Atlanta black folk elites, it's like, you know, Jackson was the one that brought not just this airport, but he brought the Olympics, Olympics down here. Right, so exactly, that yeah. was, and it's, so it's, for people to understand, it would be like, especially like younger folks now, it would be like, uh, <laughs> and I'm not comparing him in in tradition, legacy, or whatever. It'd be like Mayor Kilpatrick coming back to be mayor of the city of Detroit and saying, look, and I got this Olympics in my back, in my back pocket. pocket. The Olympics are coming back. So imagine that framework of how that's going to impact the way black folks feel. Because Maynard Jackson's legacy pre-Olympics was definitely had a large looming shadow of the of the the child murders of Mm -hmm. of Atlanta. Uh, and, and how that was handled. And then in that, I think a lot of it was just due to the way also the way that airport was built. Uh you know, just to have a black man at the helm of such a large project. project the largest at the time that, that somebody that a black person had ever been um, over yes. was was not was not well was not welcome at first. Especially, was, I mean, people should recognize from this last election with Walker versus Warnock. Like, I mean, black folks think see here Georgia and think Atlanta. Yeah. If your car happens to get stalled out. 40 miles east, west, north, south, southeast, southwest, northwest, whatever, outside of that, you will understand the, the, the difference. Georgia right. ain't exactly, exactly Atlanta. Right, exactly. It ain't Atlanta at all. Nope. It ain't Atlanta at all. Right, exactly. No, no, no. It's like, you know, you think seeing a Confederate flag, I mean, tattooed, everywhere. Clothes, <laughs> car, babies got it on. Yes. Everything. It's, oh, they can they, they, they let you know. Oh that yeah. You, that you, why you out here? Why exactly. Out here? Yeah. So it's, you lost, boy. It, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is. That's the triple A guy. Yeah. Uh huh. That's lost. going to assist you. <laughs> right. You lost, lost boy. boy. Why, what you going for? Like, actually, sir, I should not have taken the highway <laughs> right, exactly. route. <laughs> no, I was not supposed to come up on the exit. Hurry up and get me back in my car so I can get from over here. Exactly. And, and in a lot of ways, what's crazy is I'm saying this about Georgia, Michigan, as far as I'm concerned, Guess is a lot true. like oh, yeah. that in a lot of America because, mm-hmm. you know, you get very far out of, you know, I've, I was a truck driver. So, yeah, you travel certain nooks and crannies. It's like, 
you know, you got to move differently. Even though we everywhere, right? No. culturally, Mm-mm. our culture is not, not everywhere. everywhere. That's right. Yeah. So you're there during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, I mean, you're obviously as a college student, you may not necessarily be on the pulse in the context of how no. this is, but you still feel that energy. You know it. Yeah, this yeah, is definitely. around the time of LaFace Records is like... like yeah, LaFace is coming up. So, so Death is, is you know, mm-hmm. starting to make an impact with... Um, TLC mm-hmm. um, and with um, Escape coming out, and then you got the Brad. It's definitely you definitely getting to see this, and for people who outside of the Atlanta Atlanta, um, who like here, y'all people didn't know about Ti for like for eight or nine say, years yeah, after yeah. after he had already been popular there. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Outkast, mm-hmm. you had um, Goody Mob, you had all those different things that were like huge for us there. Um, growing up, they were young, you know, they were teenagers, but they still were making a name for themselves there. And Atlanta music was definitely making a name for itself um, in Atlanta. And it was like not until like 98, 99 when it started making yeah, a name for itself it. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is, and that's the other thing. So, like, even because Lord knows, I think a lot of the, a lot of those four schools, a lot of the fraternity brothers <laughs> led to like the start of freak nick now what happened at freak nick after freak nick it definitely was a lot of like you know as fun as some of the parties were it definitely connected to a lot of rape culture connecting to that yeah but, but with it like and when i say a lot meaning like any is a lot but overwhelmingly it was uh it was Freak Nick ended up becoming like a lot of now what I would say some of the mayors and some of the people behind the scenes in a lot of cities or whatever, how to organize a lot of people. Just, yep. Because that was mm-hmm. a student-led Le- kind yeah, of that, thing exactly. and again, that took before, over a whole city. All before social media. All before yes. and before before internet computers to, where you can pass information to people. It still was somehow getting people here in Detroit was coming down to Atlanta Mm-hmm. It's like, how you know about us here? It's like, oh, girl, everybody up there talking about coming down there for a picnic. What? Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to even think, yeah, it's like, you know, people talk about Black Bike Weekend or Howard Homecoming. It was that times, I assume, a thousand. thousand. yeah. Because even, you know what I'm saying, people would say, like, yeah, they had to reroute streets. Streets, so. streets was closed off, yeah. You could, there was no driver. So that means, but to me, the organization of, and that's where I tip my hat to actual college students to know how to, you know, Feel permits in the mm-hmm. city, yep. you know, talk get to permission. Kids. Yeah, exactly. You know. And it was like the city knew mm-hmm. um, the police was present, but they, I want to say the first year it was not as organized as year two and four, mm-hmm. but it still was, it still was put on where it was not, it was not, it was. It was not a problem. Mm-hmm. It was a problem, but not a problem. And it was because of the way that the school, the students, and everyone went about making sure that we want this to be something that's going on. So let's not let's not let's not make it a problem that we can't grow this the way we want it to. And, and it's different. And people still enjoy homecoming, but homecoming is still associated with like the school, school right? The school, right? Exactly. Take care of that. that, right? But to have students independently do something like that, I think changes. It had never happened before. A, I don't think it had happened before. In my mind, a lot of you students, like that, changes your perspective. Like any student that was there during those years, I think has a different approach towards taking on big decisions and doing yeah. big things. Like even like people talk about like the Detroit Super Bowl was this, the Detroit Super Bowl was that. The Detroit Super Bowl was masterful. And it took a lot of those, the the the, the brothers and sisters, because this is the other thing, a lot of those kids that went to FAMU 
that were always coming up to Atlanta <laughs> to hang out said, we know we can do this because we've seen this be done, done before. Yep. Mm-hmm. The Detroit Super Bowl was masterful the way that it was put together at the time with the resources and, and the runway and, and how. And, it can, and, it, and so I wasn't I wasn't living here when then when it happened when it ha- when the Super Bowl happened I wasn't living here but um, I did see it on television mm-hmm. and then once I moved back here it was like so many people that I know that was a part of yes. facilitating an orchestra all of them was HBCU grads yeah, exactly. they were all HBCU grads and and, and best yep. it's not like you my homie it was like no it was a collective effort focused yeah. yep. and i think a lot of that took that some of that freaknik like the the knowing it could be done yep and so from freaknik to super bowl and i mean i don't know who's going to write that book <laughs> but i'm sure that that was a lot of the path yeah. to know it's like okay well you need these people yep. okay this what well, you it, need yeah hotels hotels need Need to be like this. Well, hotels need shuttles like this. It's like it's so many logistical questions that you're not thinking about until you're like, okay, so it's really gonna be the regular population of people here plus an additional, I don't know, hundred thousand people. How do we? What do we need to do? How do how do we how do we mm-hmm. orchestrate that in a city that isn't used to having this large of a mm-hmm. of an event here? Um, where how are we? What about you know like you said hotel stay? How how do we how do we orchestrate that? How do we get the hotels outside of Detroit area mm-hmm. right? How do we get them all involved so there's like one ecosystem that's working mm-hmm. at and you have all of the great HBCUs yeah. to take care of that. So so Hello. back. So now in, the, in your story, and this is a fun discussion. Oh, we're already going over it, but I like it. You know, you're going to have to dip soon. But So we're back here. You're in the plant, and I'm really driving towards moving in your journey as an entrepreneurship because it's a lot of people that have, like, you know, Business Breakfast Club, Suzanne Clegg, another Spelman Grant. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions we say, you know, is this a hobby or a business? Yeah. And it's not necessarily for you to answer as much as to just be – it's a reflective philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, was baking a hobby first that became a business? And if so, how did that, how did that happen? So it's so interesting. So I've been baking since I was nine, right? Love to bake. My mother baked, my mother baked for like everybody in the neighborhood. My mother was known for making pound cakes. Mm. So every holiday, we would have maybe 30, 40 pounds of butter, all these eggs, because that's all she required people to bring her was butter and eggs, and she made pound cakes. Hmm. So we have all this butter and eggs in the refrigerator, and she made pound cakes for the neighborhood, everybody. And then when we had dinner, my mother my mother invited our whole, like, it'd be like 30, 40 people at our house, and she cooked all the food. She didn't allow nobody to bring anything. Wow. We would have, she would cook all the food, like 15, 20 different desserts, and she did all of it, all herself. Nobody could bring nothing. Just come eat, enjoy, take food home, and go. Um, so I used to be in the kitchen with her when she was baking, so I love to bake. But, again, my age, there was no Food Network channel. There was no, like, celebrity chefs or anything. So to say to my mother I want to be a baker didn't make sense to her, as well as I had a son in high school. Mm. So when I was in 11. 11th grade, I had I got pregnant, had a son. Mm. Um, so to, to baby say to my mother, oh, I want to be a baker, was like, mm, you want to work at McDonald's and take care of my grandson? That's not going to happen. I'm not taking care of y'all forever. Mm. So my mother took my son so I can go to school. Um, and then I went to school, you know, because I love math, love accounting, um, went to school have for corporate accounting, worked. But still baking with my sons was, you know, still something I did. But at no point did I ever 
have that desire or idea that I wanted to bake and sell to people. So the passion, well, it was a hobby at first, kind of really in following the footsteps of your mother. Yeah. And I can mm-hmm. see 30 people over as this is another black culture thing. <laughs> I hope your room, your bedroom wasn't the coat room for stuff like that. Oh, for sure it was. For sure it was. <laughs> oh, for sure it was. It was the coat room. So. It was the coat room for people. It was the, oh, go, oh, your baby sleep, go lay him in the bed in, in our room because me and my sister room was on the first floor next to the bathroom. So it was the coat room. The baby laid out in the bedroom. It was it was the everything room. Yes, so, definitely. Yes. So mm-hmm. at home gatherings, especially mm-hmm. back in the day, it's a room that's the coat where all the coats are. Yes, you're right. The yes. baby sleeps. The baby go to sleep, go put in a bed in there. It's usually a kid's room. Yep. And if you're the kid that has the courtroom, that means you're not going to sleep probably till like three in the morning. If you get to, <laughs> if you get to go to sleep, because my parents also like to play cards. And so after dinner was over with it was let's clear the food off and let's play cards. And sometimes it'd be three, four o'clock in the morning and you lay down on the couch waiting for people to get their stuff and go home so you can go to bed. It's like yes. yo, when y'all gonna finish this game right. and be a when is this gonna be a- no it wasn't be a whisk. My mother and they played tongue for money. They was in there for they was playing tongue for cash. And it was it would get heated in there. Yes, I may have to come to a family gathering. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> they get it get heated in there. Yes. So it was that, and so it wasn't until 2009 when I was reading the magazine. I was at work and I was reading the magazine, and they were talking about um, cake decorating. You can take them at um, craft stores. It's like, what is a craft store? I was like, oh, like Michaels or something. So I went to Michaels to find out about it. And you can take these classes. They would be happening. The classes would happen on Monday nights. And so I paid the $25 for the class. And you had to bake a cake. And then on Monday, you bring the cake to class. And they, they teach you how to decorate it, right? And I would Sundays I would make the cake. Monday after work I would go to class. And it was like after week six that I realized like you know what, I'm not really excited about the decorating. I'm more excited about baking the cake. And at that time they were just starting food blogs, and so I was re- I just be watching you know reading all these food blogs, and I was like I want to I actually wanted to have a food blog, mm-hmm. and so I was like. I'm a person who I need to know everything about something. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, I, I have a, you know, have recipes from my mother, but if I want to develop my own recipe, why some of the recipes I'm reading got baking powder? Why does some of them have baking soda? So I was like, I should go back to school so that I can learn which one I should be using. So that's how it started. I was going, I went back to start looking into going to school and I had went to um, Schoolcraft College because that's why I heard a lot of people talking about Schoolcraft College. Because their culinary program. Their culinary program, mm-hmm. right, exactly. And so I went over there to talk to someone and they don't offer pastry arts as a degree. They only mm-hmm. offer it as a certificate. Mm-hmm. You have to take the whole culinary program in order for it to be a, a associate's degree, right? So I was like, mm, yeah, I don't want that. Well, at first I was going to do that because mm-hmm. um, that's, that's the only place I thought. And But when I went over there, it was like, oh, but we you have to take a serve safe, which is like a national food handler's card. Remember how you used to go to Herman mm-hmm. Kiefer's to get yeah. a food handler's card? Yeah. Well, this is like a national food handler's yeah, card. Many, many a times with my with my fast food experience. Yes. You had to go get that $10 card. Yes, yes. Take that little class in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so this was a national it's called ServeSafe, which is a national food handler's card. Mm. It's like, oh, you have to take that before you can get into our program. And we only offer that once a year. Mm. We offer it in the spring. So it's like June when I went to inquire about it. It's like we so offer this. Like, I just, just missed, missed it. it. Right. Mm. So he was like, so, but if you can find some place where you can take it, um, and then by September, you're able to start if you can find some place to take it during the summer. Mm. So I started investigating, and um, Macomb Community College came up. And when I checked into them, they offered, they had a whole pastry program that, that was a degree program, not mm-hmm. just a, 
um, certificate program. Mm-hmm. So I went over there because I wanted to take the Then I thought about it. I was like, well, if I'm coming over here to take the serve safe class, then I might as well take all these things because I get a degree in patriarch. So I started at Macomb. While I was working, I would go to school in the evening time, come home. And while I was in classes, I think I was taking my um, cost control class, cost control and menu planning. And I was like, I should, have a, I should open up a bakery. Hmm. And then I started talking to my father about it. And he was like, oh, you want a bakery? He said, you should open You should open one in Nova. I think he thought it was joke. He was just like, mm-hmm. like joke because he didn't think I was going to leave my job for it. And I was like, no, if I want, I want to be in Detroit. I want to mm-hmm. be out there with them. I want to be out in the suburbs. I want to be mm-hmm. in my city. With my people. Right. I want to mm-hmm. be here. And, um, and so then I started talking. At the time, I was just dating Michelle, and we had just got married. Hmm. And I went and I was like, we got married in April of um, 2012. And in... And, um, December of twenty um, twenty twelve. I was like, oh, I think I, I think I might want to open up a bakery. I started talking to her about like, mm-hmm. I had a bakery. I could do this. I could do that. And then in and literally in April, I said, hey, I think I'm gonna quit and open up a bakery. She was like, yeah, that's not about to happen. We're talking about we in the mm-hmm. process of looking to buy a house right now. You ain't about to mm-hmm. leave your job. And she's like, we'll talk about that later. And then I didn't. We didn't talk about it for a couple weeks. I came home. It's like, hey, I get my two week notice. Wow. And and let me say this. I love this story. For for so for people that don't understand from the entrepreneurial angle, and this to me even ties to the beginning story about the 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 selling of the family land. Like as an entrepreneur, me one included, it, it's easy to feel as though you're you know I'm the risk taker and I'm doing this on my own, but. It's a lot of other stakeholders in the decision oh, when you yes. go into business. And they're there whether they agreed or did not agree. Yeah. So, like, people need to understand that. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, in entrepreneurship, I used to always wonder, like, on the outside, people say, like, yeah, you know, you may not get paid for your first five years, you know. And then you're like, how are you surviving if you're not getting paid? Especially, like, if you're onboarded for you. Right. You're onboarded around a lot of other people that have worked their whole life. Mm-hmm. So, for me, it's the opposite. My father's an entrepreneur, yeah. grandfather, grandma. Like, I've seen it. So when I meet other black entrepreneurs, I try to give game, like, with the Business Reference Club because I've been seeing it my whole life. It's yeah. a whole nother – it's a brand-new culture. It's the way you look at things. Like, you know, when I see stuff, I'm thinking, okay, how do I keep my overhead lower? Not, you know, not thinking equitable. I, I don't even think like an, like a lot of times, I think a lot of employees start thinking about to themselves like, well, you know, if I sell, they think still wage-based. It's like, yeah. well, if I sell X amount, 10 cakes, that'd be like me making $30 an hour. So I wouldn't lose a beat. Like, mm. as an entrepreneur, you don't mm. even think like that. Yeah, no, I don't think you like know? that at all. And that's so interesting to say that because I was a total opposite. My family worked. Mm-hmm. So when I told my parents, like, you know, I'm I'm quitting my job to open up a bakery, my father was, like, devastated. You're crazy. You That's lost exactly. your mind. Yeah. Why are yeah. you walking? He's like, you ain't get fired. Why are you leaving your job? Yeah. I was like, I want to open up a bakery. He was like, I didn't pay for you to go to school for you to be broke. Yeah. It, what is you talking about? Mm-hmm. You leaving? And so the whole summer when we was doing the, the build out, he kept saying, you know, they gave you a job back April. You was good. You was a good employee. They get your job. I'm like, I'm not going back to work. But like you said, also, it is. It was. It was. It was my decision. But it took my parents. It took Michelle. It took all of them support because, like you said, for like the first six and a half years, I, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't paying myself. Mm-hmm. Every dollar that I got went right back into the right business. Back, yeah. But I had my parents to help me pay bills. I had Michelle to help pay bills. So you. If, 
I had a big support system. So, of course, it, it was a lot easier for me, I say, because I had a huge support system. So even though my parents were so against uh, me, you know, leave my job to open bakery, when it came down to the build-out time and when I needed $40,000, my father was like, here. And see, and that's like, the... What? And to me, that's the other beauty, like the beginning state, you know, discussion, like family can gather if you have that rapport. Like, it, you know, we agree to disagree. That's such a overused <laughs> statement. But we can be in disagreement and I still can support the act. Yeah. Out of love and understanding really built from, to me, the character that you've already shown in your in the <laughs> reputation of life. Right. Now, it's different when if you're a cousin that. Every day is something new, it's a new and you never like, follow through with anything yeah. or whatever. It's like, okay, you know, almost like this is kind of the decisions me and my dad were talking the other day. Like, I go into most of my plays. If I do something in business, I call it a play. I look at it like I'm gonna I'm facing Mike Tyson. And furthermore, even if I take take a loss, I don't mind taking this loss which is a weird way of thinking. And it's definitely not the way you think as an employee because the minute that your job, the, the minute a manager or a boss or an owner steps in and say, look, we about to all take a gamble here. Everybody ain't going to get paid for three weeks. But we're going to make gonna this have, work. Uh, <laughs> you will have a walkout. <laughs> oh, for sure. Right. Ain't nobody coming to work. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's a different way of thinking to say, okay, I'm going to commit to this. And then this is where value systems come. And I like this discussion being fresh because as we keep planning and growing this business breakfast club, it's reassessing what other values are there. And one of the key values that I pull from my father and others is autonomy. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I, the older I'm getting, the more I love it because it, it it's, it's, I can't even put a price on that because that's what that great paying job, you're not going to get it. It's always, even with the quote unquote freedom. Nowadays, they do the whole like, you know, we insist you take the three weeks of right, vacation. Right, exactly right. Yeah. But you just, you know, you got to come back in and give us a log, log of what was doing and everything because it's other, it's other things in these world where it just because our society is so transactional, if I give you X amount of money, you I'm going to expect some respect, right? Yeah. yeah, not even, and sometimes it's not even what I'm paying you for. I'm going to expect some type of rapport and other stuff. Like, if you were still in, if you were still in corporate America right now, you would have to really be thinking, and this is for all my, my, my white homies so that you know, you invite your black employee, you pay a decent amount of money for who they are and everything, and then you have your Christmas party. As a black person, it shouldn't be like this. But it's kind of triggering because you got to even think through like, oh, man, like now as I approach this Christmas party, how do I, you know, what time do I go? Who do I give a gift to? You know what I'm saying? Can I get a drink? Like right, right. it's a lot of other stuff that you just can't even just be. Yeah. If you have a, a big paying salary, quote unquote, in, in corporate America. You're going to get those Christmas party invites. You're oh. probably going to get the invites to the client's Christmas party, too. True. And you, and that sometimes are like such pressure situations. You got to figure out how do I move in there? How comfortable can I get in there? Like, what can I do? Like, yeah. how relaxed can I be in here? Do they really want to see me? Mm -hmm. Chew me? 
Or do they want to see the work me? Yeah, because you're going to walk in that party and you're going to be like, hey, Jeff, how? Yeah, I know you got to love how the city's coming together because you got rid of that cr- Kwame Kilpatrick. And it's like, damn. <laughs> there we go. We got to have this conversation. It's like, oh, man. Now, do I just do I just nod and say, yeah. Mm, yeah you know, me, and it's, I, can't, I wouldn't be that person. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You ain't about to, we ain't about to shake hands. You ain't about to talk about Kwame because if you start talking about him, I'm about to run it down until you have all this love that you're feeling right now. All those things was put in place before he, before he left. Come on now. <laughs> Y'all, y'all, y'all eating off of his goodness. Come on, don't get me started. So, so April comes back to she gets a she gets a during the holiday email of you know maybe we can have a conversation with right. the top of the year. Yeah, exactly, can we have a sit down. Exactly, well, I'm that person. Yes, you know, it's like you know my my grandfather. You know he hasn't been in the city in forever, but we went on down for the Christmas lighting, and he said I didn't even think I'd ever step back in Detroit. Yeah. And then you're like, mm. there we go. Mm. Mm. <laughs> gotta have this conversation. Gotta have this conversation. Yeah, so it's like, it's like, is he saying this out of ignorance or is he saying this because he's playing with me? And then are the other people looking at me? And then you see the other young black person that just got the job there, and they're looking at you and for cues on how do you respond to, to this? That. Yeah, exactly. And so, it's yeah. like, do you just do you smile and show teeth? Because mm-hmm. it's like, hey man, we just. We just uh, we just bought a new car, so. Well, I got bills to pay. I can't afford to get fired <laughs> today. I can't afford to tell you what I'm really thinking. It's like, yeah, you you right, Mr. Johnson. Yeah. Detroit is, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> it is coming back. Oh God, we're so grateful right now, and we are so grateful the changes is coming to the city. What? Get in your new car. Then you see the other, the new black guy that just got hired. They look at you like with a tear out their eye, like, like Denzel this. Washington in glory, like. Oh, oh man! <laughs> like, oh man! <laughs> yes. So yeah, I know, I know that. Yes. So, so you switch off, and now you you have that freedom. And we're not saying entrepreneurship doesn't oh, come yeah. with, the, with the battles, especially being that you didn't have like who were uh, like um, where as as a person that researches, and that's a key asset because through research you become more comfortable with what you're yep. about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, who you know? Who who are some of the allies? And there's a lot of things out here that say they support small business, support entrepreneurs. I'm not saying it's not, but maybe I think the word shouldn't be support. Maybe the word should be looked at like, you know, the way it's presented is like you're the Chicago Bulls and they're about to give you Michael Jordan. Yeah. In reality, you're the Chicago Bulls and they're about to give you a really a Tony Kukoc, a good bench. <laughs> A good player off the bench <laughs> that will support you somewhat, but it's not going to, you know, really, you know, it's not going to pump. It's not going to be an engine to keep you going. Yeah. So where did you turn for, um, you know, learning how you've done? Because now I'm, I respect your business even more tenfold now, <laughs> understanding this now. Where did you turn to get some of this knowledge, get your game up in, in, in learning it? So there, was, so there are so many things that um, has helped me. So, of course, people are like, oh, well, you have an MBA, so, of course, it was easy for you. Yeah, nope, your MBA, you go to school. Now they have, like, at Ross, they have a bunch of entrepreneur classes you can take in, as in part of your MBA, right? They didn't have that with me. It was you go, they teach you in school how to go read a blueprint to somebody else and already already. I agree. Already been written out, right? So you go there and they're telling you it's already written on what you should do, how you should do it, because they've already planned it out, right? You're just stepping in there and reading, following directions. So starting a business, you have to you have to develop all that yourself, right? So I was, and so again, I go back to this part about how 
blessed I was to have the support of my mother and Michelle and my father. So my mother was retired, but she came to the bakery and damn near punched the clock like this was a job that she was getting paid for and she wasn't getting a quarter. But she was there at 7.30 every day, and she worked from 7 o'clock to 3 o'clock every day. Like it was her job that she was being paid. mama volunteer employee is better than the employee that you pay more than you think you should pay. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so because of that, it gave me the opportunity to get out and get into this ecosystem Mm -hmm. of, Build Institute, uh, Tech Town, SWAT City, um, uh, Bedrock um, stuff. It just gave me the opportunity to get out and and learn all these different things. So everything that was going on, I I embraced and I drowned myself in everything. Anything that was going on, I was there. Mm-hmm. I was there learning about it, trying to figure out how do how is this going to help me. And I did not have a problem going and asking for help. Mm. Um, so that was the one, that's the one thing I feel that has helped us a lot was the fact that I was able to have my mother there where a lot of small business owners, they're, they're the owner, they're the employee, they're the everything, right? So they don't have the opportunity mm-hmm. to get out, to go out and go to these workshops and stuff. Because nine times out of ten, most workshops is during the daytime when, you're, when your business is open. Like, mm-hmm. they, workshops, well, now they're, they're a little bit better because it's a lot of virtue stuff. But before, it happened during corporate hours. Yes. Between eight and five. Mm-hmm. Is when stuff happened. A workshop. You want to have a workshop on getting workshop on getting yourself capital ready. Is what it was. Tech Time did this like every quarter. They did a workshop called Capital Ready, where they t- t- taught you how to get your finances everything in order, so that when you're ready to grow and scale, you can take you can go to the bank and get financing, right? But all these classes happen between nine and three p.m. Mm-hmm. So when I would get to these classes, it would be me. And a bunch of white business owners in the classes. Yeah. Very, very few black businesses was in that class because they were their only employee. Yeah. They're the only person who can be there. And I can't shut down my business to go take this class. It's going to help me grow my business because then how I'm going to pay my, how I'm going to pay the bills there. Yeah. I only make money when I'm there. Mm-hmm. So having my mother, having Michelle, gave me the opportunity to be able to go to these different programs and get all that information and bring it back. But what helped me, really what helped me was a book. Um, it was called The E-Myth mm. by uh, Michael Gerber. I, I got that oh one. Oh, my gosh. As a, as a uh, I am a Walsh grad, okay. uh, uh, master's in business, um, and and I've taken some of the entrepreneurial classes, okay. but the best game, you know, it's like it's weird because you're right. Business school, as I say, is employee school. Mm-hmm. You you learn you how to, like, if if you want a great manager, mm-hmm. a good manager in business school, like, uh, probably someone that finished with the MBA can understand systems and how things can function. This is where business school drops off. The manager can identify the problems recognize what the challenges are, even know what the solutions are. But to get the resources to find that, it's going to be hard for any school to teach you that because it's so niche, it's so specific. You know, we need, you probably need four more employees. It's like, uh, yeah, thank you for that information, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) four employee money. There you go. How am I supposed to pay these people? Well, I'm just telling you this is the solution to the problem. I ain't ain't saying that I have the money for you, but I just tell you what you need. Yes, so that's, which, that does have function and utility, but 
that's where entrepreneurship goes in, the, in another direction. It's like basically in entrepreneurship, you need to be able to, uh, one of my favorite Nipsey songs, you need to be able to rebuild and destroy every, like almost pivot. Because if you're not thinking on the pivot all the time and figuring out whatever your comfortability for that pivots. For some people, it's the research. Some people, it's talking to a mentor. Some mm -hmm. people, it's... Um, some people it may just be prayer. Some people I don't know. Whatever right. that is Whatever to make you more you. comfortable right. to be confident enough to pull the trigger on what's next. What's needed, right? It, it you you need to you gotta move on it. You have yeah. to you have to. It can be a um, it can be much into it. And then another thing, and you sit and he he spoke you up praises with you. Shout out to Dewan too. The other. Uh, black leaders Detroit. Yes. Um, the other thing that you learn, well, you learn. I would hope most entrepreneurs learn and really internalize the lesson about money. Money is a fast depreciating asset, but uh, you only will really feel that unless you are a business owner, mm -hmm. because to everybody else, money is the resource and gateway for all, all things right? access. Mm -hmm. So you're going to, you know, because nobody teaches us. And I grew up around entrepreneurship. And even for me, I had to learn and still relearn this lesson. And I think it's kind of internalizing a whole lot more now. But whatever that figure is, 10,000, 100,000, 1 million, 5 million, like it will, you're thinking, you're overvaluing what you think that is. Period. Because once you start really getting into the functionality of this business stuff, you know, you buy that fancy, uh, for you it could be like you buy that fancy refrigerator that uh, that Martha Stewart uses and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, yeah. But you just got yourself a luxury car. It's two people in Michigan that can fix this refrigerator and you right. pick it up a certain way. And it's like, well, damn. It's more of a problem right let me go. Let me go down the street and see what the you buy we fry right, guys exactly. use. Because I need functionality. I need, just I need in case a workhorse, right? Goes, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I got this real fancy fridge that works, I don't know, two days out the year. And I got to wait another, I got to wait the rest of the year to get somebody to come fix it. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the people that do the code inspection and stuff know this because it's such a luxury branded company that they sent, when they sent me my refrigerator, they sent a notice to the city <laughs> that said, if you don't have this cleared, that business can't operate. There you, go. you basically brought a boogeyman right into your own business. Thinking, thinking correctly, thinking, hey, I want to operate like Martha Stewart operate. I want Martha Stewart stuff. But now you brought that boogeyman in where it's like, damn, I don't even want this refrigerator. Right now, I don't even want it. It's more of a problem than it is than it was the benefit, right? And it's decisions like that all the time yes. that you have to, like, know that, like, or, or even hiring a person. You know, I work in, and I love it because I, I have my degree in it and everything, and I'll be first to say, and I tell people, and it's funny, but my podcaster, Piper, even said, like, Cory, I want you to help me with my marketing. Da, 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 da. I'll be first to tell you, marketing is... It's a lot of, excuse the term, but it's a lot of bullshit people in my industry, mm -hmm. you know? And even me included, I could give you a bullshit product, which I know most people wouldn't say, and I'm not, this ain't even no sales pitch or nothing, because it's all about building materials to help basically share and express the message of whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If I sell, you know, sometimes it just won't connect. But a lot of businesses, and I'm saying the largest businesses to the smallest businesses every year. I mean, Google spent 
billions of dollars trying to launch Google Glasses. Mm-hmm. Nobody bought them. Right. So they had to pivot and do something else. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, to this day, I think Amazon is doing better with Alexa, but that's the other thing about businesses. You do good, you get investment, and they expect you to do, oh, well, you know, you did that with $10, so I assume with $100, you do five times as much. Right. It, it's no necessary correlation for that. Yeah. So now you busy trying to pay back investors it deviating from the product. All of these are business challenges yeah. about money. Mm-hmm. So as so I'm sure you see money completely different oh. now yeah. than before. Oh for sure. Because you because you had this idea when you first started like if I just had if I just had money I could make everything better. No, it does that's not it because what you end up doing is spending all that money. It'll just it'll just it'll be you the burn rate of it would be ridiculous because you don't know what you're doing with it. Money is not always the answer to it. I tell people all the time, it's not the you get you have all these like different programs in the city that's just like handing out money to people, but you're not giving them the technical assistance to know how to use that money. You're not giving them the technical assistance to understand why they why it's not the money that they need. They need they need this or they need that. It's their branding. It's the way their business look. I don't care how much money you spend and how much product you buy, people aren't going to come in there if they don't understand it. So giving people the technical assistance. So I definitely know that everything is not about money. But I also know, and I'll be real, having a little bit of money can help you because it can help you bring on the people who can help you, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to get to that point where I had to realize that, so yeah, I want to have money. I want to have working capital, but I also need to spend it so that I can get the people who can help me grow more, right? Mm-hmm. So that means I got to pay people differently. I got to bring some people on salary. I got to be able to know and be able to delegate. So when I first started, it was like, I want to do everything. I want to do everything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the best at everything. And then I listened to the E-Myth. And I was like in, the, in that crime when he got to the chapter about technician because when I started, I, like, I want to make the best cupcake. I want to make the most softest cupcake. I want the, the best icing. But I'm a technician. Mm-hmm. Because, again, when you work, when you're a worker, you want to be the best at your job, right? You want to make your job easy for you to do. So you're going to be the mm-hmm. best at it. Everybody want you, everybody to depend on you to do and know it's going to be great. But that you're a worker. You're a technician. Do you want to be a technician, April? Do you want to be a business owner? Mm-hmm. So year two of Good Cakes and Bakes, whole mindset change. Not trying to be the best baker. Of course, I want to get the best product, but I can hire somebody to do that, right? I can hire and teach somebody. I want to be a business owner. I want to be to the point where I don't have to close the bakery in order to take a vacation. I can take vacation and we still be open and we still make money because that's when you're a business owner, right? When you when you don't have to be there in order to make money. So I was like, I need to change the way I'm thinking. And it was from reading that book, from reading. Well, listen, I didn't read. I listened to it on audiobooks. Yeah. But listening to that book was like, oh, I got to change my whole mindset. I need to I need to stop being wanting to be a, the best technician and be a, a business owner. Get some systems. Get everything out of my head. Get it on paper. Still trying to figure that out. Still working on that part. But getting everything out of my head and having systems so people can do it and do it the exact same way. When you come into the bakery, I want to make sure that you're not coming in today and you're getting experience. Oh, I'm sorry. We don't have this today. Or this person wasn't here, so that's why it don't taste like that. Nope. I need standardized recipes. I need to make sure that every time you come to the bakery, you're getting consistent products, you're getting the same service, and you're being told the same thing. And that all came from systems. And I learned these things from listening to that book, from going taking all these classes. And I am the first person who would travel to go learn something because I know I don't know everything. 
and systems thinking and building those systems is how you can scale up. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe that we're we're watching a chain. And it's funny we're talking about Atlanta because you definitely saw this when when you go to Atlanta. We're watching one of I think one of the best chains. And John Maxwell writes anybody that reads those leadership books so mm-hmm. much about it. But Chick Fil A <clears throat> has exponentially expanded their reach and their oh, footprint, yes. mm-hmm. which has also had direct impacts on their product. So I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse, but it's had an impact where a lot now they're dealing with they're dealing with issues that just is not used to anybody that went to a Chick-fil-A before it had it's expanded yeah. to the level that it's oh, expanded. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So it's changing even the Chick-fil-A experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go online and you can see where things are, com- you know, people talking about it yeah. and commenting mm-hmm. of, you know, it used to be, you know, you know, I remember, you know, people be like, we got to go to Chick-fil-A. We got to go to Chick-fil-A. And it's like, man, this line is like I, the first time I went, I was like, this line is like 40 people. It don't matter. We're going to be out of there in five minutes. Five tops. minutes. I tell people, I tell, I tell people all the time, they be like, man, I'm not going on, I'm not going on the hill to that chick, that dog on Chick-fil-A. You see how long? It's like 50 people online. But I promise you're going to be out of that line in five minutes. Five minutes because of the efficiency and the employees. Now they dealing with, like you said, they dealing with things that they never thought they was going to have to deal with. Yes. And they thought because they had such a great system, great book, great training, that it would never happen to them. And, and, and this is an example, and I'm not necessarily, this is another one I was conditioning. People think just because people have a lot more money, have other corporate sponsors and all yeah. of that stuff, they're not going to deal with the same mm-hmm. problems. Yeah. So the jokes they would make about Popeyes, now it's some Chick-fil-A's that uh, are having the Popeyes experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Because as you say, as you scale up, now you need to associate, you know, when you have 200 Chick-fil-A's, it's like, okay, we can deal with, can you know, these that. 10 manufacturers, yep. these 10 stores for our bread. Okay, they will verify. We have another system to verify if you, you know, you're you're good enough to pr- supply us with, I don't know, breading Bread, or something. Breading, the, 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 the chicken, the mm. potatoes that we use, because if you listen to one of their books, they tell you how they only got their potatoes from a certain farm. They ended up investing in the farm so that he was only producing potatoes for them. And now you're all over the place. He can't produce for all of them. So now you got to yeah. go someplace else and you got to mm-hmm. accept subpar um, ingredients that you have no control over, right? Yes. You have no control over how that chicken is being raised, how it's being cut. You go get a chicken sandwich today. It's not the same as it was yesterday. It's like total difference. And again, that comes when you scale too fast, right? When you scale too fast and when you scale too fast, when you no longer you no longer have control. And, and that's the other things in business that you start learning, as you say, those controls. Because yep. it's always a game of, like, who's in control. So, like, sometimes people look at an owner and just think that they're the grand poobah. But in a lot of ways, sometimes the owner is is, is levels to everything. Like, you just gave a, a, a small dynamic in that Chick-fil-A piece. I like it, as you said, potatoes. So, if when you enter a region of the Midwest that anybody knows about quick service restauranting as you know, I've been that Herman <laughs> Kiefer guy. It was a horrible quick service restaurant <laughs> play though. <laughs> Got a deco award for it, but I, I like the theory of it. But um, you're stepping into the McDonald's footprint. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> even though like, even though you're talking to every farmer that you that you're, it's like, hey, we got the you know we got this great deal with these farms down here in in Georgia. You can be our guy for I don't know Illinois, right. Michigan, mm-hmm. Iowa. Would you like to be that guy? As much as you're talking to him, thinking that in your heart of hearts, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, even if we sign this deal for five years, 
if they even had the opportunity to get some of this McDonald's money. They they, <laughs> they, put, they dropping us in the They putting us down, right? Exactly. <laughs> yep. So you're like, so now even there's the big bad, you know, New York Stock Exchange. I just got a line of credit for for five trillion dollars from whatever and whoever. Now. It's a farmer <laughs> Don't even in care. Iowa <laughs> that possibly could have the leverage mm-hmm. of what's going to happen in our Midwest market, which it'll be even more attention there because McDonald's knows we're coming in yeah. and they're going to roll up their sleeves and be like, all right, we're going to even go across the street and talk to Burger King. Like, hey, you see, they're going to go. We, we still don't like you. Right. Exactly. But we can uh, we can come together exactly. to make sure that they, they don't, don't step get, into our uh, game. This you way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. You know, like like uh, just small stuff. And that's where, you know, as, as everybody says, I hate McDonald's. I hate McDonald's. If you study business, it's some interesting things. Like they study traffic patterns for, I don't know, they go back, like they say, try to go back 25 years of traffic plan uh, intersections before they decide where to place a McDonald's if it's going to get the mo- optimum support of, uh, of the franchise, you know, mm-hmm. of the backing of the corporation. So that's like interesting, and that's why usually when you see a McDonald's, you see a Wendy's or a Burger King across the street because they're like, "Hey, we just gonna go off of their research." Wherever McDonald's research, we going there too because they already did all the research. Yeah, yeah, they did that. Like so, like and and it's more than that. It's like traffic patterns, the idea of like the the, the children birth and things like that. Like these are that's the McDonald's system. McDonald's, you. It's a it's it's interesting the way that the trend, and I don't think even most people know now they've shifted. As they saw, star- and this is why Starbucks has certain competition things because McDonald's has almost shifted most of their margins to McCafe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being where they make their money from now yep. versus McDonald's because mm-hmm. they're like, okay, they, and they still can't deal with the unhealthy, you know, the supersized me stuff, but they know that we can get you for McCafe. Yeah, we get you for that. Because mm-hmm. we know how much, we know our mark, we can give, uh, and this is back to like when you say quality of the product offering. We can give you the same product offering, and it's not going to be as good as your Starbucks drink, but at the value and and the reach, meaning like you can get to us faster, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to compete and possibly put them, right. not necessarily out of business, but, but give them a lot more competition than exactly. they think. And we can give you the same feeling that Starbucks gives to the upper echelon of people mm-hmm. having that white cup. For less than Starbucks, so you like the frappies, the McDonald's mm-hmm. offers. I can give it to you for two dollars. I know you pay five dollars over at McDonald's at Starbucks, mm-hmm. but everybody can pay two dollars. Yeah. So I'm gonna get the people who can't afford to go to Starbucks every day. I'm gonna get them to come. They might go to Starbucks on Saturdays, but Monday through Friday they go to work. They are gonna grab it from us. And I think. I think that's what's going to happen. That usually is what happens. It starts like, I don't ever drink that McDonald's coffee. Right, exactly. I don't know what's going to be in that stuff. And then it's like a day, and it's like, well, it's close. I'll try it. I'll try this it. ain't that bad. So then the person that went to Starbucks every day is like, all right, in the traffic jam, I'll go. I get to then they go on Monday. Then they go Monday and Tuesday. Slowly but surely, they become a McDonald's, a McDonald's customer. There you go. Exactly. And Starbucks becomes the almost like the the – Weekend specialty. Yes. Yeah, I might go. I'm gonna go to Starbucks Saturday, but mm-hmm. every day I'm going to, to McDonald's, mm-hmm. and especially and then when they start seeing the impact that it has on their wallets, if they become a conscious thinker of like I need to be saving money, they they get to see the difference. Dang, I'm spending six dollars every day at Starbucks, mm-hmm. and I'm enjoying. I don't even finish that coffee over there at Starbucks. 
But I get this $2 coffee at McDonald's, I'm finishing the whole cup. And I'm still in the car. Exactly. Comfortable. I'm comfortable hits. in, out. Yeah. And I can get some more stuff. Oh, I want some French fries or hamburger. Yep, I got that too. Yep. yep. So I don't know if everybody's noticed, but I, I know April does. But this is what business people always think about when you get two business people talking. The offering from Starbucks, if you've gone into Starbucks it's, over the past four years, it feels completely different than what day. Starbucks was ten years exactly. ago. Exactly, it's totally changing. And if you listen to if you listen to the book, it, he talks about how he's not. It's not gonna. We're never gonna be where you can go get a meal. We're never gonna be where you can get that sandwich. We might be where you can get a bagel, mm-hmm. you get a, a, a Danish or a muffin. But we're never gonna be offering like a full sandwich and stuff. Or we're never gonna be offering a full where you dine mm-hmm. in. Now, now you go to a reserve. You go to Chicago. You got you got five different menus on the yeah. Starbucks over there. You go to Starbucks here. I can get a whole ham and cheese breakfast sandwich. I get all like ten different breakfast sandwich choices now mm. through Starbucks. Right where that, that's not what they wanted to do, but they realizing again that McDonald's mm. is taking over a lot of their market with their McCafe. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that and and it's completely different. Even though, as we know, America runs on Dunkin'. Dunkin' Donuts sells the most coffee, but that's a different coffee. Like, yeah. see, hence you have to know your coffee. Dunkin's like, look, we gonna give you regular we, coffee. We up all the time. This is for who is for. So yep. you coming in here, you not, you ain't getting we giving, nothing extreme. We giving, we giving you, we giving you coffee, mm-hmm. and we giving you the best cream because mm-hmm. everybody else is giving you. 41% cream. We making sure that all of our cream is 48%. Mm. So go to Dunkin' Donuts and you're going to get the, the highest fat and cream, which makes it the richest and the creamiest, right? Mm. You're going to get that at Dunkin' Donuts. Wow, I didn't even see? know that angle from see, see I, I, listen, I listen to all all business books. Every every franchise, they got a book. I didn't listen to it to figure out what makes them different, what makes them stand out, what are they doing. And these are the different things they, that, they, that they literally have taken and figured out this is what makes people come to them is that. And, and I've even mentioned this to a lot of people because I travel and everything. And, and it's happened kind of before our eyes. We don't pay as much attention here in Detroit because it's here in Detroit. But, you know, I've brought this up in a many interviews now. Because it's just so classic, Detroit. But Little Caesars is right now the biggest pizza business in the world. Like, the world. It, it went from basically, like, kind of not even appearing in the Nothing. Yeah. in the, in the arc of, like, almost. It went from, like, a more a regional, couple other locations type of pizza place to now it is the largest pizza. Everywhere. Everywhere, like, you know, so, and I think all of that is just based on, as I use the, the, the hot and ready discussion. It's like, you know, we, to me, yes, you know it's some better pizza out here. But for $5, for value, and this is where people, the consumer is making the, the, the value proposition to themselves. Like, okay, this Buddy's Pizza will cost me $20. For what's small? Yep. This Little Caesar's Pizza will cost me $5. So I know Buddy's is better, but at what at what cost? And then, like you say, it becomes more of a specialty buy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and there and it's money in luxury and specialty items, but yeah. it may change whatever your business model is. Mm-hmm. And Buddy's, I'm using that as an example more so as a local chain. But, right. But at but the chain that really P- Little Caesars, like as far as I'm concerned, almost wiped them off the map is Pizza Hut is. Yeah. Oh my God, it's trash. No longer. Yeah. Pizza trash. Hut is no longer. And they keep trying. They keep trying. But it's going to need something, but it can't compete at the margin of selling pizza for five dollars due to the offering of what they have in their systems and mm-hmm. their processes. Yeah. Because the, they the never ovens. had to. They never had to, right? Pizza Hut have has always been. Um, like 
Like, oh, man, I can't go to pizza. They want $20 for a doggone pizza, right, mm-hmm. with one topping on it. Mm-hmm. And so it was like it was like a luxury, and especially if you had kids, it was like, oh, we can't eat Pizza Hut. We can't eat Pizza Hut, right? Mm-hmm. And so now it's nothing they can do to change that imagery. I don't care how many $10 pieces they put together. They can't change that it was – it was always considered a, they wanted to be this. They wanted to be a luxury cha- pizza chain. Mm-hmm. When Domino's was giving free pizza or thirty minutes of free pizza delivery, Little Caesars had the hot and ready's. Pizza Hut was always this. This we wanted to be the luxury mm-hmm. fast. We wanted to be the luxury pizza chain, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll never get out of that. They'll never be able to rebrand or remarket themselves from that. Yeah, because the branding used to be, especially like in the eighties and nineties, you know the kind of like the baseball team would be over with at the game and you come you sit and we you have the pizza, pizza bar, bar but right. all of that the overhead and, and the execution and okay. like you have to reassess it's like you know a great location for pizza hut at one point in time would have been you know great but you may have to move just due to the trends of the transient home buyer now almost you may have to move every five years to just stay ahead of the game of where these families will be right. not that far from these fields you know what mm-hmm. i'm saying and this and the in the health consciousness of today like how do we compete in that these are all decisions as i say being made at high levels of people that you know when i say high levels meaning like high earning because that doesn't mean necessarily they're better or not but right. high earning corporate businesses yeah mm-hmm. where people are making these decisions as i say the entrepreneurs so the managers are stepping to the Managers step in with the hey, this is this is why we're in this situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now somebody has to really pull the trigger and make a decision, a CEO or whatever, on like how can we compete? And you gotta do it early on. Yes. You give a good example is um Wendy's. Mm-hmm. Wendy's used to be the like, where's the beef? I, I know y'all like that cheap hamburger at McDonald's, but they ain't give you no meat. You mm-hmm. pay the three dollars to get our hamburger opposed to the 89 cents that you're paying for McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You, this is what you get for that 89 cent cheeseburger at McDonald's. Look at our cheeseburger over here. It's $2.89, but look what you're getting for that $2.89, right? And then as McDonald's began, began to do the dollar menu and stuff, Wendy's had to figure out a way to, to pivot and change. So, hey, you know what? We ain't we ain't gonna we not giving you just a dollar menu. We give you a whole. We give you ten items for a dollar, and then McDonald's gave you the ten items for a dollar. They say you know we gonna give you the five for five. McDonald's can't beat that. They can't get you ain't getting five <laughs> things over there to get. You ain't getting five things over there yeah. for that now, right? So then, now we got the now McDonald's came out. So now they got the four for, but they were they were quick for their pivots. Mm-hmm. They were quick. They were like, oh, you want to copy us and have the nine a dollar menu mm-hmm. to match our nine 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 cent menu. They kept changing, and McDonald's and Burger King has had to keep up with Wendy's now. Definitely. Yeah. And keeping up with them, and, and even, like, I guess, back to, like, the Chick-fil-A thing, like, even the Popeye's chicken sandwich. That's, like, uh, like when people say there's no such thing as too many employees and that, but that was a classic example of the capacity of what Popeye's can deliver. Whoever the marketing was to partner with all of the, like, social media tastemakers mm-hmm. and, and people like that and to create it is like wow it built a buzz it struck along people know Popeye's chicken is good or people that like it like, right. like Popeye's <laughs> chicken so it's like we're gonna try it and everything like that but they didn't have the 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 Chick-fil-A system to even deal with That's the capacity right because they didn't have employees right they didn't have employees they didn't have the the one thing that Chick-fil-A has that so Chick-fil-A got 50 people in line. Wendy's got 50 people in line, right? You in line at, I mean, 
Now, when these Popeyes got 50 people in line, you in line for three, four hours at Popeyes, right? I mean, sometimes it could be two people in line at Popeyes. <laughs> <laughs> but the 50 people at Chick fil A is in and out, and it was because Chick fil A anticipated that. And now, mm-hmm. We got the people. We got our employees working the line. Yes, we're working. We got we our our system has always had four employees outside. Mm-hmm. Whether it's five people in line or fifty people in line, we got five employees outside walking the line, taking your order. So when mm-hmm. you get around to us, we giving you your order. Yeah, we giving you your order. So and when you, I mean, and Popeyes didn't have the time to think about that when. The buzz hit. I don't yes. think. I don't think they were prepared for I that. Right? So. I, don't I don't think th- they. I don't think they thought that I, I in one weekend. Yeah. Yes. They were about to make over twenty million dollars. We're, we're going to sell out of so. Mu- we're going to sell out of our stock where it's going to take a month and a half to replenish. Right. It. Exactly. Like you're not prepared for something like that. And furthermore, because I assume probably what happened is some young person that works in the team like really lit bit the ear and they, they say all right man we'll go on and try, we try it, it. We yeah, try. let's go on and try it. and they and it was like wow this but, was overwhelming but and it causes other problems because yep, even you know it's not it's, more money more problems but even in business when you make a lot of money comes other things because yeah. whoever that person that came up with that marketing strategy now two things happens that person steps in if they're smart from the business standpoint it's like all right guess what now you need to double me, double everything I did, give me more money, blah, 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 blah. Let yeah. me run mm-hmm. everything in this department, or I'm going to your so, competition. Exactly. I'm taking it someplace else. Right? I'm I'm the I am that guy. I'm a, I'm I as I'm sending this email to you, right, right. just I, know that Chick-fil-A is, is next. reaching out to me about this, okay? <laughs> exactly. So you have that, but but what it does is also is now it's creating problems in your supply chain. And I was going to say that Your supply chain, too. right? Because mm-hmm. if you didn't anticipate that, that means you were unable to sit down with the people who are making the buns mm-hmm. for you and say, hey, we need to do this. We're going to launch this on this date. We want to have this amount, this amount, this amount we want to have already in a stockpile. But we need to know how many y'all can make outside that stockpile because we're anticipating this to blow it, right? So they didn't have those conversations. So that's why the what was it like for four months the chicken yeah, sandwich was off. It. Yeah. We got taken off the menu for four months. And that right there is a problem you don't you never ever want to have. You never want to have that. On the internal side, also that's where training and everything on internal, like I say, I'm I, I you know how sometimes people be like, I got a side hustle. I've had side jobs. I I always mm-hmm. was on entrepreneur. But I've worked at Taco Bell. I've worked at uh, Pizza Hut, and I've worked at Burger King. And of all three, like when I think about the systems and how they were set up and and, and, and where things go and the arc of even customer service and what was customer service and how you make decisions and even how that trickles down to the organization. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the one of the best ones where I'm like, okay, this system makes sense. Now, I was at Taco Bell. That was like my first job other than newspaper. So that was like 90 was that 98? So a, a grip ago. But so, and they had, to me, that system then was a better system mm. because it was basically everything was the, it, it was basically everything is the same. Mm. You know, when I went back in my station to make stuff, it's either going to be hard shell, soft shell, you know, it's like, you know, the differences would be so minute that don't got tomatoes, right. that does have tomatoes. But then I look at, when I went over to to Burger King, mm-hmm. it was so many variations. Oh yeah, because you have it your way. And that's Remember? where the you toughness happened. Mm-hmm. So it would be like you know, like. 
things would be like if you were just going to order the same thing, you can get, you know, service can be faster. Kind of like a Little Caesars menu is so limited, too, because it's like we can deliver faster. We can really perfect what that system is versus like having a menu with a million one things where like one person walks in out the blue and says like, hey. I want a rodeo burger. Right. And it's like, damn, I've been working here like a, a year. And I ain't and it's made like, rodeo I don't burger. even know what the, you know, so I got to get the manager. Get What's the, a rodeo burger? We got to we gotta go find the doggone <laughs> um, standardized recipe just so you can say, like, oh, man, we don't even have that sauce anymore. Where that sauce at? Do we have any more of that doggone barbecue sauce that we use for the rodeo burger? Right, because, again, you got the, you can have it your way, right? Mm-hmm. You So you, you got to have all these different ingredients, all these different um procedures in place for that random employee, that random customer that comes in and asks for it, right? Yep. Who had it 10 years ago, and you know what? I got to irking for it again today, so let me go in here and get mm-hmm. this. And you got to keep all those, all that. So that's all overhead. That's all inventory. It's, it's, it's just got to sit there, yeah. right? Exactly. It's, it's just got to sit barbecue there. barbecue sauce, it, you know, it, it can last, you know, what, three months, but we may end up throwing it away. Throwing it away because nobody's Just because one person may come in here and buy on the off chance as opposed to consolidating the menu, mm-hmm. offering somewhat the same, you know, have the same offering. And this is like some of the things you start thinking about when you're the business owner yeah, exactly. versus when you're just the person that's like even in management sometimes. Because it's yeah. like, hey, you know, if people want to buy it, just have it in just stock. It and it's like, right. where do you have that? Where do you keep it in your refrigerator? You it has to be it. known who's going to update this type of stuff like it's so many steps when i think about all of the food things because especially me as a side employee i don't care about (laughs) none of this stuff in the grand scheme of things so you need to have a system that's very simple because if it takes a lot and i'm and i'm the person on the what you call it you're gonna definitely get a we ain't got that we ain't got that i'm sorry you need to you came to burger king you need to be buying a whopper like i mean yeah we can do one of them what are you talking about you know what i'm saying how you want that whopper you want a bacon on it yeah, exactly. We can do we can do the regular. Right. You're trying to step outside of the regular, you know, and, and that's where to me where the specialty and the niche, mm-hmm. um, the niche stores and things, you know, and, but if your niche scaling up and, and making sure that that's unique. So even going to sometimes like a, a luxury jewelry store or luxury. Here's ones that I really like going to luxury furniture stores. Mm. Because they're very unique. They're yeah. very niche. I'm mm-hmm. definitely not buying a, a $20,000 Anwar or anything. No, right, right. But I just like to walk in and see the presentation, mm-hmm. who coaches up the sales pitch, how it works. Those are usually like as far as like when I nerd out and think in business of like, okay, let's think about this offering. I'm big into like thinking about what their offering is and how they lean into nicheness as opposed to trying to scale up too much. Yeah. And what things are, and the storytelling goes differently. But wow, that's that's unique. We're gonna we're gonna be going for forever. <laughs> we're already overtime, so I gotta hit you with the classic Detroit is different questions. Definitely. And we bring you back. We definitely bring oh, you for back. Sure, definitely. I gotta pick yes. your brain on other stuff. <laughs> so, classic Detroit is different. Very first car, year, make, and model, and year you got it. Very first car I had was a nineteen eighty four. Cadillac Fleetwood. Oh man! But it was like a hand-me-down. This so this was in '93. Okay. It was my aunt who only had Fleetwoods her mm. whole since she was married, 
every four or five years, my my uncle would make sure Uncle Frank made sure she had a new mm-hmm. Fleetwood. But the one that I had was when they had made the Fleetwood and it was condensed, so it was it wasn't a long. Oh, you didn't it was, have a long. Body. No, I didn't have a long. Okay. I don't think I don't think I'd have tore up that car like day two. So it was a short body Fleetwood, and my auntie only had that for um, two or three years because she didn't like that. She was used mm-hmm. to having long, long. cars. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first year they had the, I want to say 84. Yep, it was 1984. It was the first year they had made a short body Fleetwood and she mm-hmm. didn't like it. And so it sat in a, it sat in a, in a, um, in a driveway, in a garage forever. And she got a long, the long Fleetwood Broham. And, um, and that's, that was my very first car. She sold it to me for $1,500. Mm-hmm. And I used to drive that back and forth to Atlanta. Wow. Um, now let me say this. Boy, boy, that car! I assume that's that that that's one of those cars that moves into the classic category, oh, yeah. especially because of the 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 niche of it being the the only short, short body. body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what happened with the ride? So it the engine went out on ah. it, and it's setting it's setting in the. Um, my grandmother's backyard for the longest, for about five or six years, mm. and then little a little boy came. It's like, can I buy you? Can I buy that for you? And I was like, it don't work. He's like, no, I just want it for the parts. And mm. I was like, I was like, what? And my grandma's like, no, nah, you can't buy for the parts. You about to steal a car and put those parts on there? <laughs> I was like, he's about to give me two thousand dollars for that car, grandma. What you talking about? She's Hilarious. like, no, nah, you can't say. So then after a while, she, uh, my uncle, um, sold it to the junkyard. Mm. Yep. So that was so that was my very first car. That my auntie, that got my auntie. But the very first car that I brought on my own was a 1998 Grand Cherokee. That's not mm. working at Jefferson North. Brand new off the lot mm. um, Jeep Grand Cherokee. It was green with the tan and leather inside of it. Mm. I loved it. Then got into an accident in it. Um, well, my oh. brother got into it. I didn't. My brother got into mm. accident. So then the next car I got was uh, um, a 2000 Grand Cherokee. And I got to walk the whole plant. Cause I like it was a red Cherokee and it had gray leather interior put in it and that mm. was that wasn't a normal gray wasn't mm. a normal there so I got the the VIN number for it and I got to walk the plant to make sure wow. watch all of it be made so you were you were like it's like my house my car ain't gonna be made on no Monday or Friday it ain't gonna be made it I, I'm telling you I was I was walking the plant I had the VIN number and I kept checking to see like, okay what department saying y'all ain't making my car on third shift because I work third shift y'all ain't making my car on third shift. I was, I was like, do not. I was praying, like, do not let my car be made on Thursday because they don't care about nothing over there. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah, like, so. That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah, so that was hilarious. that was my very first car that I got off the lot. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you're the DJ at the fireworks. Uh-huh. Um, it's over. What we're in Jefferson. Get to play three songs. What songs are you playing? Oh, wow. Ooh. Hmm. What's three songs am I playing? What's the crowd like? Is the kids out? Is it's it up grown? to you. Okay, like I so, said, it's the end of so the fireworks. Me, I think it's everybody. Okay, so for me, it's going to be Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. Jay-Z is my number one. So we playing Jay-Z, and we are playing um, his very first song that I ever heard was um, Nigga What? Mm, what? That okay. was my very first song. So that's the first song we playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we playing Beyonce, Dangerous in Love. Okay. And we are going to play Rochelle Pharrell. Hmm. Yeah, those are my three. That's my which three. which Rochelle Pharrell song? Um, with open arms, of course. Ah, yes, of okay. Course, yes. So you you leaving on a uh, somebody like finding that love? They partying with the Carters, and then they find okay. the love at the end. There you go. Those are my three songs. All right. Last question. You can rename after rename Woodward after One D Trader. Who would it be, and why? Oh wow! Oh gosh. Um, 
Of course, it would be Comey Young. Okay. Comey Young would be who we would name Detroit after. And why? It's because my whole childhood, he was our mayor. Mm. He was our mayor. So this was like black man who didn't care what he said. He was for black people. He didn't care who he was in the room where he didn't care who he was talking to. He let you know mm-hmm. that everything I'm doing is for the betterment of black people. If you don't like it, take your ass across eight miles. I love it. So, yeah, so that's that's who we named it. We named it COVID-8. Uh, yes. I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. Great discussion. Yes, definitely. And I really, really patronized her space probably definitely. like every, every week. Every, every week, week. Every week. Yes. Yes. We love good cakes and bakes. Definitely. Yes. Family. You got to have that on deck. And uh, we're going to talk more. But now I know the business science of Dwan. It's like, it's some other things that I think just sometimes just the game. You yeah, know definitely can't wait to of, talk again. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of game that you have and knowledge that I think sometimes, as you said, like every problem can't be fixed with money in, uh, in life. But definitely even in business, definitely every problem business. can't be. So sometimes you can work around the corner and solve it. Yeah, definitely. Can't wait to come back and talk. All right. Yes. Peace be. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.